Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best of Vice. It's Wednesday, May 2nd. I'm Sophie Casas. Today we've got a really interesting interview for you. We're talking to Amanda Knox about her new series, The Scarlet Letter Reports, which looks at the gendered nature of public shaming. Most people have heard the name Amanda Knox. As a young student studying abroad in Italy, she was wrongfully convicted of the brutal murder of her roommate. She spent eight years on trial and four years in prison, even though she was eventually exonerated of all charges. Throughout the trial, a headline-hungry media vilified and shamed her, using sensationalized reporting and sexist stereotypes. And yet, despite the immense trauma of this experience, Knox has been trying to use her own story to help others who have similarly been scrutinized and harassed. We're really lucky to have Amanda in the studio today, sharing her journey from once being deemed Foxy Noxy to now journalist and New York Times bestselling author. Knox is the host of a new original series produced by Vice, which premieres today on Facebook Watch. In the Scarlet Letter reports, Knox sits down with Anita Sarkeesian, Amber Rose, Daisy Coleman, Brett Rossi, and Misha Barton to explore what it's like being sexualized and demonized by the media, and also how these women have rebuilt their lives afterwards. So here's Vice's executive editor, Dory Carr Harris, speaking with Amanda about the show. We're here today to talk about your new show, The Scarlet Letter Reports. For those in our audience who might not be as familiar with your case as others, can you tell us a little bit about your journey to getting here? Everything that led to this moment here, I guess, all started when I was 20 years old and I was studying abroad in Perugia, Italy. And I was uh, there in Perugia for about a month when one of my roommates was murdered. And it was it was so strange because it was the like one time that everyone else that lived in the house that we all rented together was gone. It was this special holiday right after Halloween that they celebrate in Italy where everyone goes and visits their like dead relatives at like their graves. And it's a very like somber tradition and in the meantime like I was just hanging out with my boyfriend and spent the night over at my boyfriend's house and the only one who was home that night was Meredith and a burglar broke into our home 
found her there, uh, raped and killed her, and um, and it became this tremendously huge case, not just because of the horrific thing that happened to Meredith, which was already itself like this insane horror story because nobody wants to like hear that like this wonderful young woman went off to go study and then was raped and murdered, which happens too many times in this world anyway. But then on top of that, what ended up happening was the police in Perugia targeted me before they had any forensic evidence, before they had any kind of take on the case, they just followed what they called their investigative intuition, and they targeted me as a suspect. And I was arrested within days after being brutally interrogated without a lawyer. And when the forensic evidence finally came back pointing to this local burglar, instead of admitting that they had made a mistake, they dug in their heels and crafted this story where this local burglar who I did not know, like was not someone in my world, was somehow manipulated by me in this orchestrated sex game where I was going to like punish Meredith for being this pure Madonna-like figure. And I like orchestrated this local burglar to, to rape Meredith for me. And then somehow I was going to kill her. And so that's that's what ended up being this like huge case where the scandal was beautiful, wonderful, promising young woman gets murdered. And then other promising young woman turns out to be a ruthless killer. And wow, how sexy is a story like that? But like in the process of crafting that story, the prosecution... And the media lost track of the truth. They lost track of the evidence. They were trying to make this story make sense in ways that were obscene. And I think the most revealing way that I can convey to you is, you know, there was no trace of me in the crime scene. Like, Meredith was murdered in her bedroom. She was raped. It was a brutal murder. There was blood everywhere, fingerprints, footprints in her blood. Like, it was a gruesome crime scene. And there is no trace of me anywhere in that crime scene. And the police claimed that I was somehow able to be involved in that life or death struggle and rape without leaving a trace of me behind, whereas the actual person who committed this crime did leave traces everywhere. And so it's just my my case is strange in wrongful convictions cases because mostly people who are targeted and who end up being wrongly convicted are black men, are, are marginalized, impoverished people and being this young woman from a middle class family, highly educated, it was very, very unusual. So the case itself was unusual in many ways. And one of the ways was that it became this media disaster where, you know, 2007, when people are just starting to really like inhabit social media and have that be a means by which we exchange information and become these echo chambers, 
my case was one of the first ones that really just blew up in tabloid media and social media where like what was true media and what was false media was just starting to become this like scramble of misinformation. Yeah, that's what (laughs) I guess what led me to working on this series is that ever since I've come home, I first started out by not wanting to have what happened to me define me. I came home and I just wanted to go back to the life that I had because whatever happened to me had nothing to do with me. It was all these forces that were just shoved on me and I I didn't feel like anything belonged to me. But then over the years, I, I realized that I couldn't just deny what had happened to me. I couldn't just say, no, it wasn't a part of me. Clearly, I had gone through a process. I had been imprisoned for four years. I was on trial for eight years. I had a deep understanding of what it feels like to be interrogated by police officers and also what it was like to be dehumanized in the media. And once that like clicked for me that I needed to process what I had gone through, my own trauma, I then started looking outwards and seeing how it had happened to other people too. And that feeling of isolation that I felt was suddenly opened up when I encountered a world of other wrongfully convicted people, or in this case, another world of women who have been vilified by the media in ways that have nothing to do with their guilt or innocence. Like, I think that's the thing um, that, that is really something that I care about going into this series is, for me... And this is a controversial statement, but for me, whatever you've done in this world, you are still a human being. And that doesn't make you less worthy of context than any other human being in this world. One of my heroes is Brian Stevenson, who is um, director of the Equal Justice Initiative. And he's a death row you know, lawyer who has encountered people who are unfairly put on death row compared to other people. And, you know, yes, they are guilty people, but you know what? They're also people and they deserve to be recognized as humans. And so often what I have found in our media is that as soon as the rest of us have decided that you are an object or you are a commodity and not a person, suddenly we all become like weirdly psychopathic towards you. We feel this weird entitlement to like hurt and punish you and portray you in whatever way that we want. And suddenly you are you are less of a human. We're able to throw those stones without feeling a sense of guilt for that. You know, I lived for years with people who had done terrible, terrible things. And I think that that experience made me open to the idea that the people that we call bad people are still people and are we actually defining them for what they've done or for what we have labeled them to be you know the truth in my case was lost in large part because it was very easy for people to imagine me as a bad person because of the label of femme fatale that was placed on me so in my case i didn't do anything wrong But like, how often are we denying the truth of what happens because we are we've decided I know what kind of person you are and now I know how I can treat you.
Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in your case, you you did sort of experience incredible trauma. As you said, you were on trial for eight years. You were convicted mm-hmm. um, in prison for four years before the conviction was overturned. Obviously, that is an experience that most of us will never have and is is incredibly impactful. The question that came to me when I was watching the series is, because the Scarlet Letter Report is a show where you are speaking to women who have been slut-shamed, vilified in the media for their sexuality, you know, for their personalities, for what they've done or, or what they speak for, what they stand for, it, it is, and it's a very personal and intimate series, you are there with these women really, you know, living their trauma, but also reliving your own. And so I think to me, I'm wondering what made you want to do that or what made you feel like it was the right thing to do? You know, um, I guess the first inkling that this was something that was worthwhile to experience with another person who had gone through it um, actually came when I met my first friend outside of prison in my poetry class. And inevitably, I would end up writing in abstract terms about the experience of being overwhelmed by forces that are greater than yourself and what it's like to have your identity rewritten by strangers and your life that you thought you were going to have taken away from you. And I was writing about all of that. And there was a girl in my class who my poetry particularly resonated with. And she didn't know who I was. And I I loved her poetry. I thought it was fantastic. And we ended up having, you know, coffee after class. And what we discovered from those encounters was that the reason why my poetry resonated so much with her and her poetry resonated so much with me is because we like we had this moment where she was like, oh, my God you're you're a man of Knox. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm a, I'm a man of Knox. She was like, I was gang raped when I was 16. And everything you write about feels like what it felt like for me. And that moment when I realized that like what I experienced wasn't this like singular unique thing, but actually resonated not not just in the lives of other wrongfully convicted people, but resonated in the lives of trauma like just the trauma itself, the existential crisis of it feels the same and in a way like derives from very similar fundamental base problems that we have in society. That stuck with me and it has never left me. And in my own like little humble way, I'm just like constantly picking at that. And the Scarlet Letter reports is that it's a it's a It's me reaching out to other women and saying, I know we have a connection. I know we have common ground. Let's find it. In trying to find this common ground with these women and help them tell their stories and bring to light, you know, the injustice that that they may have suffered. What is it that you want the audience to learn or to take away from the show? I mean, this show is a show about media, 
which is perfect because it's like meta layers and meta layers. And my like thesis statement that I've come to is that compassion and context have a very important role in media. And you can be a objective journalist with all the integrity in the world and you don't have to be an asshole. You can do that. You can do that work, that very important work with compassion and always taking context into the equation. And in so doing, you actually do a much better job at journalism. And as an audience, we should demand that kind of journalism. And we are all fatigued by the media. And I think one of the the one of the reasons why we are fatigued is because we don't trust it anymore. And in order to trust it, the media needs to take responsibility and as consumers we need to take responsibility for the media we consume. That's what I hope people take away. And if you were to sort of give one lesson or, you know, one piece of advice additionally to the media, because I do think, you know, what you said earlier about your trial sort of taking place right at the outset of a kind of new moment in media where social media and a 24-hour news cycle and this sort of need to fill this space and time with constant information, with, you know, for lack of a better word, excitement or momentum has played out and has continued to evolve and we see sort of like a much further developed ecosystem today with, you know, our Trump watch with a kind of constant need for new news, bad news, obviously charts better than good news. How do you think that the media can be more responsible? I think there are already examples out there of people who are attempting to do media right, who are taking the time, who are being careful to ask their own questions and not just recycle the information that comes their way, and to question anything that sounds too easy or too two-dimensional. I think that already exists. What doesn't exist quite yet is valuing that kind of journalism in our society. Things that involve human beings, that involve complex situations, are easy to reduce because we want to just hold, you know, we want to hold our pitchfork. But being self-aware about the hive mind and the mob mentality and the scapegoat instinct that we all carry inside of ourselves will make us more demanding of a media that does not cater to those instincts. I think we as consumers have to take responsibility for what we want from the media. And then the media will respond because this is capitalism. <laughs> so. so true. I mean, I think, you know, what's really special about this series is that, you know, you talk about scapegoats and you talk about sort of 
the media being a defining, the defining voice of a story. And, you know, what Scarlet Letter Reports does is allows these women to tell their own story in a way where they are setting the narrative, where they can share their experience, where they can talk about the emotions that are obviously connected with these events that don't always make it into the headlines or where there isn't enough space or enough, you know, emotional space to sort of pause and experience them. And you experience them with the various women that you talk to as you're going through the series. So when you were talking to these various women, what was sort of, what did you find the most difficult? The most difficult is encouraging women to trust that they can even tell their story at all. It is not an easy thing to come out and speak to a media person after the media has torn you down. And, you know, I can't, I can't promise the women who I interviewed that the people who are going to watch this series are going to come away from it all feeling kind. You know, in my own experience, I put my humanity out there. I feel like I've never had a choice but to add my voice to the chorus and not claim full authority of my experience, but to claim the authority that I very genuinely have. And yet, that doesn't mean that the person across from you is still going to see you because the media, at least in my case, created a very thick screen of judgment that I face any time I encounter any person ever. Um, and the women I interviewed face a similar struggle. The courage it takes for people to put their stories in the hands of someone else is astronomical. I think the other hardest thing is that not everyone is at the same place in processing their experience. One of the things that bothers me about the way that wrongfully convicted people are experienced or consumed in the media is there's always this, you know, they got out the day they got out and what are they, they're going to eat a hamburger at McDonald's. Happy, 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 the end. <laughs> and that day, that day is not the day that those exonerees are ready to talk about their story, are ready to convey to the world what it is that they learned and what matters. And similarly, it takes time to wrap your mind around what happened to you, to blame yourself when you should blame yourself, and to stop blaming yourself, to really stop blaming yourself when it's not your fault. I remember meeting Monica Lewinsky for the first time. It was before Me Too happened. And she, first of all, is one of my heroes. She still, the way she talked about what she went through, she still blamed herself in a very deep way that I didn't think she deserved. 
And I can't tell you how thrilled I was to read her latest Vanity Fair piece where she like actually acknowledged that she was an intern, that she was, you know, 22, 23 years old. And this was the most powerful man in the world. And that was a non-negligible factor in her experience. And the fact that like she finally, after 20 years, she carried that guilt She carried extra guilt that she shouldn't have had to carry for 20 years. And that defined who she was for herself. We are all figuring out what this means, not just for ourselves, but for the world. And that's, you know, that's me too. That's women redefining what it means to be a woman, redefining what it means to have gone through these utter atrocities And this, the Scarlet Letter reports, is one aspect of that. It's a different kind of assault on our personhood. But it still comes from the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I think in the interview that you did with Amber Rose, she put it really well when she says it's like taking punches for other women and being there to take those punches and to experience that abuse or that vilification together or to say, me too, like, you're not alone. This has happened to other people. It's happened to me. This is not an experience that needs to sort of, you know, exist in a bubble or exist in your own mind or Mm -hmm. wherever else or exist in the media only on terms that are not your own. And what sucks is like, you know, she's she says, I'm taking punches for other women And that's true, but it's also true that those women are still taking their punches. What Amber Rose is showing is that you can take punches and rise above it anyway. Like, you don't have to, like, take the punches and fall down. What are some of the punches you think you've taken? Oh, God. I mean... I, um... I don't know how much I've, I don't know yet what what happened to me means to other women. What I do know is what it feels like to be fearing the threat of sexual assault while in prison. I know what it feels like to be reduced to a sex object, to a fetish object, to a fantasy, and have that take over my entire life. I know what it means for that to impact your family. And, you know, I have, I have three sisters who are younger than me, and they grew up in the crisis of their sister being defined as the femme fatale and how, how, how they were then corrupted by the corruption of me and what it is meant to represent the evils of femininity and female sexuality. I don't know yet what that means to other women, 
but I know what it means to me as a woman. And it makes me incredibly sensitive to the ways that other women are similarly dismissed and discredited and abused. What I went through was strange and extreme and incredibly unusual. And it puts me in this weird position of going through something that everyone has gone through and going through something that very, very few people have gone through. But it has opened up my eyes in a way that I cannot be blind to what I see happening around me. I hope that my experience is valuable. It feels valuable if simply because I see something wrong and I'm trying to fix it. And what advice do you think you would give to your former self, you know, um, many years ago in your early 20s, even, you know, first entering that courtroom or first beginning to be involved in this process based on what you've learned from it and, and what you've experienced afterwards? You know, when I was um, in prison, um, it's it gets fucking lonely in there. Um, and I would talk to myself. I would have, like, whole conversations with myself before it all had happened. Sometimes I had conversations with myself like, you know, you, you are entitled to a lawyer. You don't, you know, trying to tell myself what I had learned. Like, they were, they were never going to believe you. Or call your mom, call your mom, call your mom. But I think if I could impart anything on someone who is not me, but someone who is young and growing and is coming into a situation like what I went through, it is that you are not alone, that you are not crazy, and that someone else knows what's happening to you and there's no shame in finding help I'm so grateful for the conversations that we are having today in society because I think that it would be a lot harder to do what was done to me now than 10 years ago that shows that we've matured as a society. We're starting to see the humanity in each other. But it is so scary and so real how that humanity can be lost in the eyes of others. And, you know, I think Amber Rose said it best when she said, we can say who we are until we're blue in the face. If someone has decided that you're not human like them anymore... There's nothing you can say. All you can do I mean, really all you can do is know it yourself. 
what I cannot say to anyone is, don't worry, you'll make it through, because that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen in every case. You can make it through. And that's maybe the thing to say, is you can make it through. You can prove who you are. You can deconstruct the narrative and recraft your existence in this world. It's not impossible. It just is so, so hard. And I can imagine, I mean, I can hear it in your voice that having that agency taken away from you, having that ability to own your own narrative and to express it is infuriating. How are you dealing with that anger? What has been helping you to move forward with it or move past it? Do you want to move past it? Oh, gosh. I mean, I don't like being angry. And I don't consider myself an angry person. And I think that might have saved me in terms of my sanity. Um, When I'm in a really bad place, I tend to just shut down. I go numb. What has very much helped me is recognizing my own humanity and the humanity in others. And that includes the people who did all of that to me. That includes my prosecutor. That includes the tabloid media journalists. If I've learned anything from my experience, it's that when we are having discussions about what really happened, you have to acknowledge their humanity too. I saw how the truth was lost by even righteous and noble desires. Like Meredith had been murdered. She had been raped and murdered and people wanted blood for that. And I don't blame them. That's why I was cooperating with the police in the first place searching for the humanity and the context with compassion helps you open your eyes to the reality of the situation. I don't want anyone to hurt. I just want the truth to be acknowledged. And I think that a lot of people who experience trauma, one of the most traumatic things about it is that your truth goes unacknowledged. Like, I've been traumatized. Don't make me feel crazy on top of it. I am a human being. As you've sort of started the next chapter of your life, what has been the hardest thing to reacclimate to after all of this? Um, I feel a deep sense of empathy for those people whose traumas happen in their own homes or their own social spaces and it becomes a part of their of their living space which makes it feel like it it's it is intrinsic to them the weird thing that happened for me was i was in seattle and then i was across the world in perusia and then i was plunged into a prison which is a whole other world whatsoever and then i was 
sent back thousands of miles to, you know, back home in Seattle. And so, like, I have this weird sense of, like, geographical space that defines, like, the emotional, psychological space. Most people have that all bundled up and bundled together. I feel the safety and love of my home and my family and my friends. And I feel the incredible hatred and 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 vitriol coming from the tabloid warped world outside of that safe space that I have. I have had trouble being a part of the world that is not aware of how how these black and white portrayals of people affect the way we think. It's just so apparent to me. And I continually come across people that I love and respect who are habituated into thinking in black and white terms. And I suppose, like, the Scarlet Letter reports is also just me going, please, just, just, see, just see me for a second here. Like, I'm not crazy when I'm saying, like, this, this is a problem. Not everyone who even knows me and, and cares about me deeply gets it. I realize that I cannot just assume that people are going to get it. I have to do the work of articulating this trauma and this perspective to myself and then to others. And I can't take that for granted. You are a person to whom people have asked a lot of questions, and they've asked their own questions. And so, you know, I wanted to ask you, what is the question that you would like to be asked? I suppose the thing that has most often bothered me as someone who has asked a lot of questions is a lot of people have limited their inquiry to what happened. And not many people have asked me, what do you think about what happened? And that's something that I've tried to remedy <laughs> in the Scarlet Letter reports. I ask, you know, everyone I talk to what happened because, you know, you need to get that information there. But the really, truly important thing about the Scarlet Letter reports is asking them, what do you think about what happened? You, as a human being who has gone through something, are valuable. And I value what is going on inside of you right now. Make sure to check out the Scarlet Letter Reports on Facebook Watch. And for more information, go to broadly.vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks so much for listening. And tune in again on Friday for another Vice Guide to Right Now. <laughs>